0: Father, thank you for this time to be together with people of like precious faith, with those who love you, that we can come together to study your word. We can come together to pray for each other. We can come together to fellowship with one another. And thank you for providing all of those things to us through your people. Uh, Lord, we pray for those who are ill, uh, that you will, uh, particularly those who have COVID, that you will be with them, Father, and provide strength and healing and restoration. And uh, Lord, uh, those who have other challenges in their lives, uh, some we know about, some we don't know about, we pray, Father, for your uh, hand. Um, We know your hand is always for good, for your hand upon them. Uh, Lord, thank you for such a great salvation that you provided through your son Jesus Christ and his willingness to bear our sins on Calvary's cross. So that by believing in him, we can have eternal life and be a part of your family. Now Father, help us as we study your word. Teach us by your spirit. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I know that most of you were not alive to see the I Love Lucy show, the first time it ran in the 50s. Uh, But how many of you have ever seen I Love Lucy in reruns? Okay, quite a number of you. Now, there's an iconic phrase that many people use from I Love Lucy, and it's supposedly said by Ricky, although there are all kinds of uh, theories that he never really said this on the show, but I'm sure you're familiar with it. Where supposedly Ricky said, "Lucy, you've got—it's iconic, folks—you've got some splaining to do." I can't do his accent, but Lucy, you've got some splaining to do. And usually, it's because Lucy's done some harebrained thing, and <laughs> and uh, so he he wants an explanation. Well, you could very easily say that about Peter in our passage this morning. Peter, you have some explaining to do. Because that's what the first part of Acts chapter 11 is. It's Peter's need to explain to the church. As one writer said, when Peter returns to Jerusalem, he has some explaining to do to the church. They want to know, why did you go into the home of a Gentile? Why did you break our law? Notice, not God's law, but our law. That's what we'll see as we go through here. In Acts chapter 10, it demonstrates to us that the Gentiles, as we've studied Acts chapter 10 over the last couple of weeks, It demonstrates to us that Gentiles could have a direct relationship with God without going through Judaism and without circumcision. Thus, instead of being pleased at Peter's overture to Cornelius and his Gentile family and friends, they criticized him. The church in Jerusalem, the mother church, criticized him. Peter's response to their criticism was simply this, God did it. That's what we're going to see in chapter 11, verses 1-19. to 19. Peter's defense is God did it and they had better not be found to be opposing God. Well, look with me at chapter 11 in verse 1. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. And at this point... You might expect to read. You might expect that Luke might say, and they were so delighted that the Gospel had gone to the Gentiles. They were so delighted that the Gentiles had embraced faith in Jesus Christ. But that's not what it says. Look at what, verse 2. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Instead of praise for what he had done, instead of praise for opening the church to the Gentile, they had nothing but criticism for him. Peter, you better explain yourself. You better explain yourself. What were you thinking when you went into the home of the Gentile? Now, first of all, we have to ask, who are these people who are criticizing who are these people who are criticizing? Well, they are Jewish Christians who were zealous for the law, who were sticklers for the ban on social intercourse between circumcised and uncircumcised. That's what scholar F.F. Bruce says. That's a good description. These who are critical, these circumcised believers who are critical, are Jewish Christians zealous for the law. Zealous and sticklers for the ban on social interaction between Jews and Gentiles, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. One writer calls them Judaizers. This is a group or a party which came into existence Shortly after Gentiles were brought into the church, and they're called Judaizers. Others think that they were Palestinian Jewish Christians, as opposed to the Grecian Jewish Christians that we ran across in the martyrdom of Stephen. When Peter went up to Jerusalem in verse 2, the circumcised believers, at the very least they are Christians who hold to the law of Moses as Dr. Stanley Tooth Saint said. They are Christians who hold to the law of Moses. So understand who we're talking about here. We're talking about believers. We're talking about believers who, as the writer said, still held to the law of Moses. But the problem is, it isn't just the law of Moses here. Uh, In fact, it's not the law that forbade contact between Jew and Gentile. A.T. Robertson, the, the Greek scholar, said this, there is no Old Testament regulation forbidding such social contact with Gentiles. Though the rabbis had added it and had made it binding by custom, there is nothing more binding on the average person than social custom. Another writer said, even though the Talmud allowed for business partnerships, even bathing with Gentiles, Jews were forbidden by the Talmud, not the Mosaic law, but by the Talmud, that which the rabbis added to the Mosaic law, they were forbidden to eat with or accept hospitality from Gentiles. Contacts with the Gentile made a Jew ceremonially unclean. Even entering Gentile buildings or touching Gentile possessions made them ceremonially unclean. So it is these, understand these are Jews who are believers in Jesus Christ, who have, are yet caught up in the Talmudic law. Not the Mosaic law, but the Talmudic law. They considered, as Dr. Ryrie said, Christianity to be exclusively for Jewish believers. They were fine with Gentiles coming in as long as they came in, not on an equal basis, but as long as they came in under the Old Testament law, under the law of circumcision. So they criticized Peter. By the way, this criticism would continue and this the effect of the Judaizers would continue in the church. It would continue in the church for quite some time. I want to show you that. Take a look with me at chapter 15 and verse 5 of the book of Acts. Chapter 15 and verse 5. The apostles and elders met to consider this question after, excuse me, I'm reading 6, verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. There we see the effect again of these Jews who were trying to bring the Gentiles under the law and particularly the law of circumcision chapter 21 and verse 20 we see another reference when they heard this chapter 21 verse 20 says they praise God then they said to Paul you see brother how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law all of them are zealous for the law Galatians chapter 2 and verse 12 when Peter came to starting at verse 11 to get the context when Peter came to Antioch I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong before certain men came from James he used to eat with the Gentiles but when they arrived he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who who belonged to the what to the circumcision group and the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. The influence of these Jewish Christians who were attached to the law of Moses, who wanted to bring Gentiles under the law of Moses and particularly under the law of circumcision, went on and on in the church. And this is one of the first times they will deal with it and try to put it aside. And we'll see when we get to verses 16, 17, and 18, that they were somewhat successful at this time. Unfortunately, the question would come up again at a later time. So they call Peter on the carpet, so to speak, and call him to account for why he went into the home of a Gentile. Now again one writer made an astute point he said this it is plain that peter was not regarded as any kind of pope or overlord we're told in catholicism peter was the pope peter was the head of the church Uh, uh, the the pope is infallible Uh, but here you see peter being called to account by the other apostles calling him to account for himself. He wasn't some kind of pope. He wasn't kind, of some kind of overlord to the other believers in Jerusalem or an overlord to the other leaders of the Jerusalem church. In fact, we find out later in the book of Acts that the real leader of the Jerusalem church was actually the half-brother of Jesus, James, the one who wrote the book of James. He was the leader of the Jerusalem church. Now, God used Peter in a marvelous way. Don't get me wrong. God used him in a great way. But he wasn't some kind of overlord or pope, as we're often told. He was subject to the other apostles. In fact, as I read a moment ago in the book of Galatians, some years later, Peter is called on the carpet by Paul and called to account for his failure to follow through in the truth of God's word. Peter is an interesting character because here we see him in Acts chapter 11 standing up for the truth of God's word, standing up for what God did, standing up for having gone into the home of a Gentile, standing up to the other leaders, telling them that if they opposed this, they would be opposing what God was doing. Just... Sometime later in the book of Galatians, we find Peter caving to pressure. Peter is admirable in so many ways, but he was subject to pressure just like we are. And we have to be careful to be consistent in following the truth of God's word. We need to be consistent in following the truth of God's word. Peter unfortunately shows some inconsistency here in chapter 11 of the book of Acts. He is standing solidly on solid ground for the truth of God. And yet later he would cave to pressure. We have to be careful that we stand solidly on the truth of God and that we don't deviate from the truth of God. And we don't let pressure, because uh, we'll talk more about this next week, but our society is bringing great pressure upon us as believers in Jesus Christ to deny the very literal truths of the Word of God. And too many Christians, or those who call themselves Christians today, are not standing for the truth of the Word of God because they are afraid of people. To put it in contemporary terms, they're afraid of being canceled. Folks, it's a much greater issue to not stand for the word of God than to be harassed by the world that hates the word of God. Well, Peter shows a bit of inconsistency, but in chapter 11 of the book of Acts, he is strong in standing for the word of God. I think there's another thing here, and and this is kind of a little aside, but you and I have to be careful not to live on yesterday's faith. Do you know what I mean by that? We have to be careful not to live on yesterday's faith. So many times... We are hearkening back to yesterday. What I did before. What I was before. Peter could say, oh, I stood for the Word of God back in Acts chapter 11, but here in Galatians 2, I'm having a little bit of problem. You can't live on yesterday's faith. You and I must be growing daily in the Word of God. Growing daily in our commitment to God. You can't live on yesterday's faith. And I can't live on yesterday's faith. Well, again, in verse 3, verse 2, Peter went up to Jerusalem. The circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Again, the complaint was that he ate with Gentiles. A violation, not of the Mosaic law, but of the Talmudic law the Talmudic interpretation of the Mosaic Law. They didn't understand the significance of Peter's vision of chapter 10. When Peter explained about noon the following day, 10-9, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry, wanted something to eat. While the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheep being let down with all kinds of clean and unclean animals. And a voice told him, the voice of God, he tells us, tells him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And it happens three times. Peter understood then what God's message was to him. Peter understood that God was showing him that he should not call any man impure or unclean. Peter, God was showing Peter, as we saw in last week's passage, that Peter learned how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear Him and do what is right. Peter came to that conclusion by what God did for him, but these Jewish Christians attached to the law and circumcision in Jerusalem, did not understand the significance of Peter's vision. The reason they had such a big thing about eating with Gentiles is because eating with someone signified acceptance and signified fellowship. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 11, where Paul tells the church that, he was not telling them to separate from the world that was sinful, and he lists the sins there in 1 Corinthians 5. He was telling the church to separate from believers who are involved in the sins that he listed there. He said, you can't separate from unbelievers, otherwise you'd have to go out of the world, but I want you to separate from believers who are guilty of those sins. And he adds a phrase, he says in 1 Corinthians 5:11, and do not even eat with them. You see because eating signified eating with someone signified acceptance and fellowship. Well, how did how did Peter answer this criticism? How did Peter answer being called on the carpet? How did he explain himself? The short answer is this. Peter said, it was God's doing. It was God's doing. How do do we know that that's what Peter was saying? Because all throughout chapter 11, verses 1 to 18, all throughout this section, In Peter's answer to the leaders of the Jerusalem church, Peter tells them about God's involvement. You can look at this later. We're not going to look at these verses because we have plenty to cover today. But in verse 5, in verse 5 of chapter 11, he says, I was in the city of Joppa praying. This vision that he had occurred while he was in prayer, while he was communicating with God, The vision occurred. God breaks in. Verses 7 and 8, he tells us of chapter 11 that the Lord's voice was the voice he heard telling him to take, to kill, and take, and eat. In verse 9, he tells them and tells us that the voice that he heard spoke from heaven, that was commonly thought to be God. The voice spoke from heaven. In verse 12, Peter said, the Spirit told me. The Spirit told me. In verse 13, he tells them about how the angel appeared to Cornelius. How the angel appeared to Cornelius. And in verse 15, he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as He had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as He gave us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? Peter said they received the same gift as we received on the day of Pentecost. They received the Spirit. They were baptized into the church by the Holy Spirit of God. And God did it to the astonishment of Peter, to the astonishment of the witnesses, the six witnesses who came with him. God did it without the imposition of Jewish Christian hands. As if God were saying to Peter and the others, step aside, I'm doing this. I'm the one who's incorporating Gentiles into the church without circumcision, without coming under the Mosaic law. I am the one who's doing this. So, Peter shares his defense with them The Holy Spirit came on them as He had come on us on the day of Pentecost. What's Peter's conclusion? One writer said it this way, nothing less startling than this, that men who are truly cleansed and filled with the Spirit should be treated as brothers and recognized as members of the body of Christ. God Himself was making no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Peter's actions were based on what God did. If that is the case, then how could Peter oppose God himself? To reject that truth would be to oppose God himself. For them, the Jerusalem leaders, to reject that truth would be to oppose what God was doing. Larry Richards makes a great application of this section of the Word of God when he says this, As believers in the 21st century, we are also called to a radical acceptance of others. The world sees and judges people on the basis of race, background, occupation, age, and appearance. But we are to see others as fellow believers or as people who need the Lord. That is a great statement. Every person that you and I meet, is either somebody who needs Jesus Christ or a brother or sister in Christ. Every person we meet, that's the only categories. That's what we see. Not race, not occupation, not social status, not politics. When we look at somebody, we're seeing one of two kinds of people. We are seeing those who know Christ as Savior or those who need Christ. To know Christ as Savior. How simple that would make life, wouldn't it? If that's how we looked at people, they are people who need Christ or they are people who know Christ. They're, that's it. And that's how we should see them. The writer says, Richard says, we are to see others as fellow believers or as people who need the Lord. It's not easy learning to accept others. The early church, the early Christians rather, are proof of that, but it is one of the changes followers of Jesus Christ are called to make. Well, verse 18 When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. They had no further objections, literally in Greek, that is, they remained silent. They had nothing more to say. (laughs) Peter answered well. Peter answered well. He blamed himself well. It's evident that God's hand was in the conversion of the Gentiles. It doesn't mean they weren't astonished. Do you notice what they said in verse 18? So then God has granted even the Gentiles. I love that, don't you? God has granted even the Gentiles. We will grudgingly accept what God did. We're so far beyond that, we don't grudgingly accept. We believe everything God does, right? Sometimes it takes a little convincing for us like it did, for Peter like it did for the early church in Jerusalem. God has granted them repentance unto life. To repent simply means in Greek, it's metanoio. It means to have a change of mind or heart. The mind, the heart is the center of being to have a change of, at the very center of our being, to turn toward truth, away from error, to turn toward God instead of away from God. Now, unfortunately... This accelerated the split between Judaism and Christianity at this point. Up to this point, even the Jews were accepting of the believers in the church. But from this point on, you see the split between the church and Israel get wider and wider and wider. Well, this dealt with the issue of the legalists and dealt with the issue of the Judaizers and dealt with the issue of these Jewish Christians attached to the law and to the law of circumcision. Temporarily, the question was answered, but it would raise its ugly head once again in Acts chapter 15. Well, one writer summarized the chapter this way, the chapter up to verse 18, this way. Luke is demonstrating the early church's resistance to Gentiles coming into the church directly, apart from coming to Judaism in some way. Luke is demonstrating that God Himself is behind this new moved by the mention of angels, the supernatural, visions, etc. Luke is demonstrating that Peter, the apostle to the Jews, the leader of the Jerusalem apostles, is the one that God used to open the door to the Gentiles. Many people have questioned, why didn't God use Paul? Because later on we find out that Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, Peter is the apostle to the Jews. Why didn't God use Paul? Well, Paul would have been the worst person God could have used to open the door of faith to the Gentiles. Peter was the best one. Peter was the best one God could use. The fourth thing that Luke is demonstrating is that the Jerusalem church accepts the Gentiles' conversion apart from allegiance to Judaism. Because as Peter said, God had obviously affirmed it. God had obviously affirmed it. Well, now we get into a whole new section of the book of Acts, starting in verse 19. Verse 19 of chapter 11 is uh, the introduction to the church moving to the uttermost parts of the world. In fact, the center of missionary activity would no longer be in Jerusalem The center of missionary activity, the center of the the churches reaching out to the Gentiles with the gospel of Jesus Christ would now change to another city, the third largest city in the empire, and that is the city of Antioch. And we're introduced to the city of Antioch starting in verse 19 of chapter 11. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to the Jews. However, verse 20, Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. A critical change is now taking place in the book of Acts. A critical change is now taking place in the book of Acts. The church is now taking the initiative to reach out to the Gentiles. Before this, the initiative was on others. The outreach to the Ethiopian eunuch, the outreach to Cornelius, Now the church itself is taking the initiative to reach out to Gentiles and bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 19 tells us the fallout, the fallout from Stephen's ministry. Verse 19 takes us back to Stephen's message and Stephen's martyrdom. And now we see Picking up again in chapter 11, verse 19. The fallout from Stephen's ministry. Samaria is evangelized. Saul is saved. And the Gospel spreads to Gentile areas. What was meant to harm the church rather caused the church to what? Grow. What was meant to harm the church rather caused the church to move out as God had expected it to, move out from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and past Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. That's the fallout from Stephen's ministry. One writer said, Thus, what was intended for the hurt of the church was made to work for its good. The enemies designed to scatter and lose the church, Christ designed to scatter and use the church. You see, they thought the persecution of Stephen and the death of Stephen, the martyrdom of Stephen, would put an end to the church. They thought it would stop the church. That was their design. To scatter it and see the church just dissolve. And for all intents and purposes, humanly speaking, it seemed like that's what could happen, right? It seemed like that's what could happen. One of the church's greatest spokesmen, Stephen, is put to death by stoning. A great persecution follows. And the intent of the enemies is that the church would be scattered and lost. But God's intent always overrules. God's intent always comes to play. And God designed that they would be scattered and they would grow the church. I've shared with you that statement, quote, of one of the church fathers, the Blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Another writer said, as so often proves to be the case, a time of persecution becomes a time time of expansion. That's why you and I are living in a great time. We're running around with our hair on fire. But a time of persecution... A time of difficulty is a time God can use the church in a mighty way and it's a time of expansion. So what are we going to choose? Are we going to put our heads in the sand and pretend that people don't hate us because we're believers? Or because we accept the Word of God literally? Are we going to choose means other than spiritual to deal with the issues going on today? Are we going to realize that we are living in days of opportunity? We are living in days of opportunity. You see, God's disappointments, God's obstacles, God's challenges that he allows to come into our way, into our lives, are the gateway to greater things. They're the gateway to greater things. Now, I want to I want to share with you uh, a, a way that we see that it's not in the not in the midst of persecution. This is not a story of persecution, but seeing how God's disappointments, God's challenges, God's obstacles are the means to further growth in our lives and the means for him to fulfill our wills. I'd like to share with you from one of our missionaries' newsletter. They are fastly becoming uh, very, very much favorite to, favorites to me among uh, the, all of our missionaries are favorites, but I really enjoy, and I've shared with you before, sharing from the Enos' newsletters. The Enos' Are at work at the Air Force Academy they work among the cadets there some of the people in our church some of the student pilots uh, have encountered their ministry at the Academy well we just got a this newsletter the other day and in it they describe something that God did in their lives they came out of a disappointment so I want to just share it with you in their words, and this may be as far as we get this morning. In their newsletter, they say this, Gather round, friends. It's story time. This is a tale of God's sovereignty, timing, provision, and intimate knowledge of that which brings us joy. The reason I want to share with this with you is because for so many of us, we, we, And you may be in this situation right now where you're facing an obstacle or you're facing disappointment in your life or you're facing God's uh, 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 challenge in your life. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to know that it's through those obstacles, challenges, disappointments that God can enlarge our lives. Well, this is the story of the Enos's For nine sweet years... We worked and lived at camp on a property covering 1,000 acres, a pond, horses, and Rob's beloved wood burning furnace. These perks were all just extras on top of a ministry environment that we cherished. I think they were ministering at Virginia Tech, if I'm not mistaken, before they went. To the academy, that's what they're talking about here. So when we felt God calling us away from this delightful slice of heaven, it was very hard to leave. The only thing that was clear at the time was that we knew we were called to invest in cadets, pour our lives into them, and point them to the saving work of Jesus. Fast forward nine more years. It's the middle of the last year during the height of COVID restrictions at the Air Force Academy. Our access to the Academy had largely been revoked except for a small window to access the public spaces for one-on-one meetings. All large group gatherings for our crew ministry were via Zoom with no indoor spaces to meet on base in the early fall, we were able to carefully meet in large outdoor spaces, but by late fall, it was too cold and restrictions prohibited this nonetheless. All this, they write, led to the sense that God was calling us to step out in faith and to look for real estate, which would be A, close to the academy, B, serve as our home, and C, serve as an off-base ministry center. Our current home was in a great location outside the North Gate. However, the outdoor space was very limited, and we would often have cadet vehicles parked up and down our our residential street in front of all the neighboring homes. The timing of this on this was terrible, as you can imagine. With the real estate market at an all-time high across the U.S., but especially in Colorado. In faith, we contacted the realtor who sold us our existing home, started looking at available properties. After a year of looking, plus seven offers made on homes, which all got quickly outbid, we were discouraged and ready to call it quits. Obstacles. Disappointments. Challenges. We were discouraged and ready to call it quits. And just in that moment of discouragement, they write, was when God chose to do something crazy cool. We got a call from our realtor that a family friend of his would be moving into a retirement living center and thus in time would be selling their family home after 35 years where we were invited to come have a look at this home before it was even on the market and this is what we found. A family who loved Jesus and has, had always used their home for ministry. An owner who is retired military with a desire to continue to impact the military community, a home with a huge open ground floor for gathering loads of people on nearly three acres, right in town, a family quarters upstairs with a spacious kitchen, a second kitchenette on the ground level, lots of trees and grass and open space, a view down the valley toward the academy, our own private parking lot to fit at least 12 cars with more along the driveway. And get this, she writes, both the husband and wife had learned to walk with Christ through the crew ministry at their small college in northern Colorado, the very ministry that the Enos's are part of. And they love the idea of crew ministry continuing in their home. And she says, oh my goodness. We returned from this house tour and began praying that if God wanted us to move forward on this property, that he would make it clear to us, and wonderfully he did. Within a couple of days, the owners called and said they would like to sell it to us without even putting it on the market. In addition, they wanted to gift us the hot tub, the tractor, the snowblower, the road grader, extra beds, a remodel in the master bedroom, an extra refrigerator, tools, a furnace replacement, a septic overhaul, and a new roof. there was only one lingering question. How would we pull this off? Once again, the Lord provided in some amazing way and they were able to purchase the property. He said this, all this selling and buying of homes took place in just a few short weeks in May and by June we were signing closing documents and moving into this new home. It's been a fun summer since then making this home a space that's well suited for our family and a welcome home away from home for cadets. There's been lots of painting, yard work, placing and replacing of furniture and setting up of beds. We feel like God has once again gifted us with the blessing of many aspects of which we loved and cherished about living at camp, but right here alongside the beloved cadets that he has called us to minister to. And their conclusion is this, isn't God good? Isn't he faithful? Isn't his timing always right? We see that in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, as the church is persecuted and faces disappointment and obstacles and challenges, that God proves faithful. So let's close here with the question what disappointment may you be facing or obstacle? or challenge. God uses those in your life and in my life to enlarge what he wants to do through us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the Enos's. Thank you for their ministry. Thank you for providing for them as you have a place large enough to hold large gatherings indoors and outdoors as they minister to the cadets at the Air Force Academy. Please bless their ministry. May they see many of the cadets come to faith in Jesus Christ and many of the cadets grow in their faith who have trusted Christ. And Father, help us as we encounter the people in our lives Help us to recognize they are only of two types. They are believers in your son, Jesus Christ, or they are those who need him. Help us to give our obstacles and disappointments and challenges to you and stand back and see what you will do. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.